You're listening to a sermon from Lakeview Baptist Church. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at 6 o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning, everybody. It is my honor to spend some time with you and hear from God according to His Word. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. I'm going to go ahead and tell you we will be all over the Bible this morning, but Acts 17 will be kind of a home base for us. It is my delight to preach God's Word to you today. And my hope this morning is that we might know more of the Lord of Scripture, that we might stand in awe of His uncreated glory and beauty and be captivated once again at the wonders of His gospel so that this God, this God that pursues our redemption through His Son by His Spirit may fill our vision and be our treasure. It is the great providence of God and the great skill of Adam Trailer that you have been primed through the songs that we have sung this morning to hear what I believe is God's word for us this morning according to Acts 17. So don't leave what we just sang off to the side and then switch gears. Now I want you to stay where you are. But I will say on the front end, uh, I don't know how you are about packing for trips. I always overpack So I have a lot of food up here on the table. My hope is that we won't have leftovers, we'll just get to feast, all right? That's the goal, so just bear with me and hang on, all right? We got a lot to cover. It is this God in particular that we desperately need to know. The God of the Word, the God who has revealed himself through the prophets and the apostles, and most supremely, Hebrews tells us, by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we gather as the church, we gather as the people of not just any God, not just a God, but this God. Not of just any divine being, not just any concept of deity that you or I tend to agree with or hold at this point in time. No, we gather as the people of the triune God, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who saves us by His grace alone through faith alone for the glory of this God alone. And the wonder of reality for all creation in general and for us as His image bearers in particular is what I hope you don't miss this morning, that this God has spoken and has revealed himself to us. He didn't have to do that. There's there's nothing compelling God to reveal himself to you or me as his creation. He didn't even have to create anyone or anything, much less reveal himself to them. But what we find in Scripture is that God wants us to know him. He moves to give his beloved the gift of eternal life. And Jesus clarifies in John chapter 17 what that means. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ 
whom you have sent. And that's what I want to. More than anything, as one of the pastors of this church, I want you to know God. Not just know Him so that you might pass a test on a page, but that you might know Him and experience His life. So we have a God who reveals Himself and wants us to know Him, and He's made a way for us to know Him. He's given us His Word. And so today we're going to read and learn about our God. Particularly, we're going to dive into ways in which He is not like us. There are two kinds of attributes when we think about the attributes of God or ways, characteristics that we want to know God according to His Word by, and we understand those as communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Those are two big words that just mean this. Communicable attributes are attributes that you and I share with God. God is good. We can be good. God is merciful. We can show mercy. These are kind of attributes that you and I can grasp and practice in our own lives with our own human natures. But there are incommunicable attributes, things that you and I do not share with God. God is infinite. We are not. God is eternal. We are not. And today we will see, as far as these incommunicable attributes go, the doctrine of divine aseity. I'll just spell that out for you. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. It's from the Latin word, Latin words ase, which means from himself or of himself. So incommunicable attributes. He got them, we don't, right? Communicable attributes, we have them as well. So what we're talking about this morning is divine aseity, an incommunicable attribute. I'll explain that in just a minute. There are two things on the outset that you and I need to keep in mind. First, we're going to put our thinking caps on and remember that every person in this room is a theologian because every person in this room has thoughts and beliefs about God. And second, because we as the church have the gift of the Holy Spirit who knows the depths and thoughts of God according to 1 Corinthians, we really can know Him. And we really can know Him as He is, truly and rightly. So Acts 17, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul has been going around planting churches, sharing the gospel, meeting Gentiles. And in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is explaining to the religious among the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And in verse 22, just for context, read with me. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So here's the setting. Paul is about to tell these religious devoted followers of some kind of sense of the divine who it is that they ought to know. Who really is the true God? They have all these altars to all of these false gods, but they have this altar to an unknown God. And Paul says, I'm going to let you know him because I know him. And I want to share him with 
you. Paul wants these Gentiles to know the true God, and we ought to want to know the true God. So let's see what Paul says, how he describes at the very beginning of this speech who and what God is. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What Paul has just articulated, what the biblical witness supports, and what we will spend our time together with is the doctrine of aseity. So let's pray before we go any further. Oh Lord God, holy, holy, holy is your name. The earth is full of your glory. Who is like you, O Lord of glory? There is no one. You sit enthroned in the heavens as sovereign and Lord. You are the uncreated one, eternal, needless, completely sufficient in yourself. And we praise you. We worship you because you have given us your name. You have revealed yourself to us. And as we look and gaze upon the face of Jesus Christ, we look and gaze upon the face of God. So Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see your uncreated glory? Give us ears to hear according to your word, the truth of who you are, so that we might rightly behold this God, the one true God. We ask in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna break down the doctrine of divine aseity into two parts. First, we're gonna think about how the Lord is self-existent. He's the creator who was and is and is to come. And then second, we're gonna see that the Lord is not only self-existent, but self-sufficient. That is, he has no lack, he has no need, and therefore all of his acts are the abundant overflow of his generous plentitude. So put your thinking caps on and hang on. Number one, the Lord is self-existent. The Lord is self-existent. With Paul, we confess that God is the Lord who made the world and everything in it. That is, God made all things, and therefore, he himself was not made. Now, this is basic right? This is what we teach our children very early on, right? Who made you? My, my two-year-old son knows some catechism questions. Who made you, Abe? God made me. What else did God make? All things, right? He knows that God is the creator. And the Bible begins, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, so there's creation and there's God. There's, there's two things going on here. There is the uncreated God and everything else. God is, as we say in vacation Bible school every year, the one true living creator God. So, so in your minds, there should be a kind of ledger, two columns that we would call being. And on one side, we've got created being. And that's everything. 
from quarks to archangels, from blackberries to black holes, everything. And on the other side of the ledger, we have uncreated being. And there is one item, and it's God. He is not one among many other things in a set. He is not a greater version of something that we have ever seen or experienced because there is no thing like God at all. See, I have a slight concern that for many of us, our conception of God is just like a a super version of us. There's just like a really strong, really powerful, really smart version of you and me ruling and reigning over all things. Or or maybe if we, we want to get religious about it, maybe like a super version of an angel, right? There's angels and there's archangels and then there's like God. He's like super angel. He's like super powerful. He can do all kinds of things. But he is not in any kind of relatable category to creation because he is uncreated. We sang he is holy, In fact, the angels of Isaiah 6 cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And yes, when they say holy, 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 they mean he is morally perfect. He is absolutely pure. But they are also saying he is completely other. He is completely different. He is categorically on his own. God does not reveal himself to us as a bigger, better version of whatever things we can come up with. It may be on the screen, maybe not, but hold your place in Acts 17 and find with me Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We set the stage, right? Moses is out in the, the, the wilderness outside of the the Egyptian kingdom that he was once a part of, shepherding under Jethro, his father-in-law, and he stumbles upon something that he has never seen before. That is a bush that is on fire, but it's not being burned. Kind of an odd experience. And then the bush starts talking. Even weirder, right? Like, This is a very unique experience. And so when Moses goes to listen to Yahweh, the Lord, speak to him and say, I've chosen you to deliver my people out of Egypt. Moses asks a question. In verse 13, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Pause. You and I, if we're not careful, we think Moses is looking for a code. We think that Moses is looking for the word that the Israelites will hear and go, you know who we're talking about. We don't say his name out loud, but you've learned his name, and so now we believe you. Remember the history of the people of God in Egypt. For 400 years, they have been enslaved by a polytheistic kingdom ruled by these gods of all kinds of things around them that need to be served and placated so that they can be controlled, right? Like we have the God of the crops. Well, what do we do? Well, we sacrifice to this God of the crops. Why? So that then he'll give us our crops, 
right? So we do things for this Egyptian God so that that Egyptian God will do things for us. And so the people of Israel are not looking for a code word. They don't know his name. They don't know his name. Because they think, well, there's all kinds of gods. So which one are we going to follow? Which one are we going to be driven out of this place from? And God is not playing that game because he isn't like these gods. He's not in this category. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. He is not like Ra or Newt or Isis or Anubis or Horus. He isn't one of the many gods created through the primordial struggle of chaos and order or in the minds of sinful humanity. He is the great I am. God's self-existence means that he has life in and from himself. There is no one who created him. There is no one who made him. There is nothing before him. He receives his life from no one or no thing. And therefore, God is necessary. He must be. He must be. And here's the, re- the humbling reality of that truth. God is necessary because he is the uncreated Lord of glory. We are creation. We are not necessary. We do not have to be. We don't have to exist. The word for this is contingent. So God is necessary. Remember that ledger. The uncreated one is necessary. Everything else Contingent. Contingent. That is, we depend on his existence to exist. Without him, there is nothing. God is self-existent. He is necessary. We are created. We are contingent on him. Divine aseity means that everything you and I have is from him the living God who has life in and from himself. That means that you and I are consistently every moment of our existence under the creator's grace. His grace. Because he sustains us with his own life. You and I do not have life in and of ourselves. You and I don't know in our minds how to make our lungs work, much less our heart beat. It happens. And you can say, well, these are natural processes that we've understood over time to be these kind of automatic responses. Sure. But you did not give yourself life. You did not decide one day to exist. He decided that you would exist. He he decided that you would be. He decided that you would have life because as a creature, your existence is grace. We are the effect. He is the cause. Therefore, he is the Lord and giver of all 
life. Listen to Anselm of Canterbury, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, write, you alone, Lord, are you are what you are and are who you are. He alone has of himself all that he has, while other things, that is everything else, have nothing of themselves. And other things, having nothing of themselves, have their only reality from him. And whether you are a believer in God through faith in Christ or not, does not change the reality that if you are still breathing, it is because the Lord and giver of life is putting breath in your lungs, breath by breath. He's the creator. He is self-existent. And self-existence in the doctrine of aseity is to be understood as connected to the mystery of the eternal relations of origin. You've heard Pastor Brian talk about this. The Father, Son, and Spirit relate to one another through these different kinds of ways. The Father has what's called paternity. Paternity. We see this in John chapter 5. Again, you can try to follow along, but I'm going to fly through these. Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Did you hear what Jesus said? As the Father has life in himself, as though this is an automatic conclusion that you and I should believe. The Father has life in himself as Father. Just a couple of chapters later in John chapter 14, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples in verse 6, a verse we are all familiar with, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. I, the Son, Jesus Christ, have life because I am the life. And then further in Romans chapter 8, one of the summits of all of Scripture, Paul writes, if Christ is in you, Romans 8 verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So the Spirit is able to give you life as a believer because the Spirit is life. Because he has life in and of himself. So the Father in John 5, his paternity shows he has life in and of himself. The Son's generation or filiation in chapter 14 verse 6, is has, he has life in himself. And Romans 8 verse 10, the Spirit's spiration, he inspires and gives life because he is life. Joel Beakey says it like this, the creator is always the giver in all his relationships to his creatures. God is never the getter. He is always the giver because he is self-existent, because he has life in and of himself. Okay, back to home base, Acts 17. The very end of verse 25, Paul says, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is what Paul means. You and I have life because there is a God who is self-existent, who is not like us. And so he is able to do what we cannot do. He's able to give us life. And look above where Paul writes, the Lord God, the God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth. So if God is the creator, if he is self-existent, if he stands alone on the ledger of uncreated and everything else is created, that means that he is rightly called the Lord of heaven and earth. If God is self-existent, the creator of all things, then that means that he is completely sovereign. He is Lord of all. He is over everything. We wrap up at the end of our time together today with some points of application. But for right now, we need to see that the self-existence of God should be a great comfort for God's people because he made us, he gives us life, and he is in control of all things. The doctrine of divine aseity secures for us, God, you are not like me, and because of that, I can rest. Because you neither sleep nor slumber, I can rest. Because you hold all things in your hands, I don't have to hold all things in my hands. Because you have life in and of yourself, I, can't, I don't have to try to drum up life in and of myself. I can just receive life. What should this produce in us? If God is self-existent, it should produce in us a lot of things. But one thing we've already done this morning that I hope we might continue in our whole life is worship. God is unlike us. And so when we see him as he is, like a mirror, he reveals us to ourselves. And we quickly see he is worthy, we are not worthy of worship. So it should kill idolatry in us when we see God for who he is. Turn, with, turn to Revelation chapter four. There's just two quick examples here. Revelation chapter four, at the end of all things in heaven, there are these two kinds of created beings that are hard to describe, it seems, according to John. John chapter 4, in verse 8, he's been talking about these four living creatures who are around the throne, covered with eyes. And in verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say. Now, listen to how they worship God and what they say when they worship him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Their reason for worship is that he is completely other and that he is completely self-existent. And then we skip down just a couple of verses. The 24 elders who gather around the throne as well, casting their crowns before the throne. Verse 11, notice why they worship God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What is on the minds of the host of heaven when they worship the triune God? You are the creator. You are self-existent. You are completely other. You are unlike us, and so you are worthy of our worship. 
God is self-existent. He is the creator. But he also is, according to this doctrine, divine aseity, he is not just self-existent, he is self-sufficient. He lacks nothing. So second point for this morning, the Lord is self-sufficient. Go back to home base if you maybe hopefully have a finger there or a bookmark there, Acts 17. Let's read it again. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Our God does not live in man-made abodes. He is not served by human hands because he needs nothing. The Lord is self-sufficient. He is lacking in nothing. He has all that he needs for self-existence in and of himself because he has life in and of himself. That means in a real sense, unlike you and me, God is completely independent. Independent. He is self-sufficient and self-satisfied in the eternal triunity of the Godhead. Who he is, is enough. We creatures are utterly and constantly dependent. We need things all around us all the time to just continue existing. Gravity, right? You take that away, we're done. Oxygen, take that away, we're done. Heat, water, protection from the sun, air pressure, not to mention things like food and shelter. Our dependence is not a result of the fall. It is our design as creatures. Don't miss this. In the new heavens and new earth, you will still be utterly, constantly dependent It's just that your life will now be given fully by the Spirit of God who has life in and from himself. So that means that in the new creation, you will never wonder or worry, do I have enough? Because your dependence will be infinitely linked to the one who is completely independent. Our dependence, like our createdness, is supposed to teach us something about God and ourselves. But there are two ways we end up going wrong. I'll put this on the screen. Two ways we end up going wrong here. First, we think we are just like God. And so we think as we live and move and have our being, I'm not really dependent. I'm self-sufficient. I can get things done. I work hard. I earn all that I make. We think that we're just like God. That that we are the Lord of life and in control and without need. That we have no needs around us because we take care of ourselves. That is idolatry of the highest order. To think for a moment that you are not a creature is to say that you are God. Because there are only two categories in this ledger. 
as if we could fool ourselves for a moment into thinking that we aren't at all times fantastically needy. That's the first way we go wrong. The second way we go wrong is that we think God is just like us. So if we don't think we are independent or self-sufficient, we think God has needs that we can provide. And if we can provide needs that God has, then we can manipulate him. We can control him. Oh Lord, if you would just answer this prayer, I'll fill in the blank. That is manipulating the God of heaven. If you'll just do what I want, I'll do what you need. I'll give you what you need. As though the Lord who has life in and of himself is just waiting on the edge of his throne for you to give him some trinket he has not yet collected. We think this way because we are often controlled by our needs. I need food, and so I'll do a lot to get food. I need money to provide, so I'll do a lot to get money to provide. I need comfort, so I'll do a lot to get comfortable. I'll even sin to get it. God cannot be directed. He cannot be persuaded. And because God is self-sufficient, he cannot be controlled by you, by me, by anyone or anything in all creation. I don't have time to turn there, but just listen to Elihu as he speaks to Job in Job 35, verse 7. He says to Job, if you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Answer, nothing. There's nothing Job has that God is going, man, I really wish that Job would just give me that and all of my problems would go away. You may think then, if that's true, if God really is self-sufficient, if he has no needs, no lack, there's nothing you and I can really give him that he needs or desires as far as filling up something that doesn't yet have contentment in his heart, How does he really relate to us? If God is self-sufficient, if he's not served by human hands and has no needs we can fill, then is any of our offerings to him, is any of our worship of him, is any of our faith in him really real? Does it matter? Is he so transcendent? Is he so unlike us that we can't really have any relationship at all? The answer according to scripture is that yes, those things matter. But let's just think for a moment. What if God was needy? What if he did lack? What if he needed something we could give him? Then when we gave him what he needed, that would create a change in God. His acts would somehow depend on the events of history. And we would make God contingent, not us. As though God is just up in heaven, sitting on the bench, ready to play the game but he needs you and me to come give him the green light to come play. You don't want that kind of God. You don't want a God who only acts when you tell him to act as if you know better than he. A God who has needs is a God who can be controlled. A saity means that creation 
was not some solution to a lack in God. It is not out of need that God created. So then what is it? If it's not out of need, creation is out of abundance. Abundance. So don't miss what this means. God does not need you. He does not need me. He does not need us. And yet, he loves us. He doesn't need you, but he loves you. God doesn't love you based on your performance because your performance has never been the motivation for his love. God loves you because he freely, sovereignly, joyfully, wisely, out of abundance in himself, set his unyielding affection onto you. And because he is God and eternal and aseity is true of him, he will never take it away. So our relating to him matters. Not that we are giving him something that he does not have. but that we are recognizing and magnifying what has always been and always will be. When we worship, it's it's not wrong for us to say we want to give glory to God, we want to glorify Him, we want to give God the glory. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that language, but we got to think about what we're saying. We're not giving Him something He needs. We're not giving Him more glory as though there's like a storehouse of of glory points, and every time the church worships, the storehouse gets filled. No, we behold the glory of the uncreated God and say, yes, that is true. He is worthy. He is the one we set our affection on. He is the one that we magnify. He is the one that we recognize. We confess what is true, that God is worthy, that he is glorious, and that our lives exist to make much of him. That leads us, thirdly and finally, as we land the plane, to the good news of divine aseity. If he is self-existent, if he is self-sufficient, then as Liam Gallagher says, aseity ultimately is an affirmation of the essential beauty, goodness, fullness, and generosity of God, the perfection and completeness of his being in himself. So a couple of things that we learn from this doctrine that we can apply to our lives now and forever. First, divine aseity shows us that God is forever worthy of worship. He is forever worthy of worship. Listen to Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Why? For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. God is forever worthy of worship because he is not like us. Second, divine aseity shows us that the incarnation is an act of incomparable love. Don't miss this. 
we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The uncreated, self-existent, self-sufficient God became a baby. How much more needy can you get? This God took on flesh and dwelled among his people, taking on all the constraints of a human nature, not being constrained in his person, not being constrained in his divinity, but really experiencing life as a human, as needy, as limited, as one who gets tired, as one who gets hungry, as one who needs rest, as one who can't go on and on and on. Jesus, the eternal Son, took on Himself a creaturely nature. He crossed the ledger for you. For you and for me, he crossed the ledger. And John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Wonder of wonders. The God who is self-existent, who never needs, took on flesh for us and for our salvation. The one who is unlike us became like us in every way. He became needy. He suffered. He experienced pain and brokenness. He died because of love. Not because of need. Not because of lack. But because of love. This God who is utterly not like us became one of us so that we might have his life. Third, Divine aseity shows us that God is ever faithful to his promise. Last place, Romans 11, in verse 34, Paul is worshiping the mysteries of God and his ways. He says in verse 33, we'll start, start in 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How? unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Why? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who who does God ask for advice? No one. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
Amen. If you are in Christ, his promise to you is as sure as his own life. If you are in Christ, then his promise to you is sourced by his infinite supply of all that is needed for life and everything. If you are in Christ, this is the God who made you, the God who redeemed you, who promised you eternal life. And if you are not in Christ, this is the God who has made a way for you to come to know him so that you might confess your sin and your need before the one who has neither sin nor need and the Lord and giver of life will out of his eternal abundance and generosity bring you out of darkness and into light. And it needs to sit with us for just a moment that there are billions of people around the world and there are many across the street from us who do not know this God. Like those on Mars Hill before Paul in Acts 17. They're religious. They, they have a sense of the divine, but they don't know him. But we know him. We know him. And like Paul, might we say in our hearts, oh, that others would hear his name and see his incomparable glory. Oh, that we would know this God. So as Adam and the team come for us to respond, would we hear the word? And not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. It's teaching the youth this morning from James chapter 1. He who hears the word but doesn't do it is like a man who looks in the mirror and upon looking at himself walks away and immediately forgets what he's seen. Don't be deceived. Don't forget what you've seen. Know that this God is the God who is worthy of your worship. This God is the one who has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This, this God is the one who is faithful and trustworthy and good and kind. And so the response of your heart might be, oh God, would you help me to turn from my sin? Oh God, would you help me to see my wicked ways? Oh God, would you help me to know that I am needy, but you provide? Or it might just be, oh God, would I worship you? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.